Ensemble 74 presents How Can We All Make It Into the Future? 74 podcast series. On the podcast, we discuss the global pandemic we're currently facing and how it'll reshape our reality and society with opinion leaders and creative minds from all over the world. Let's explore together what the future might bring for us. Welcome to 74 Podcast. My name is Timothy Vorekia, and I run a consulting firm whose job it is to bridge the gap between the private sector and the public sphere using culture, education, and social responsibility as means to better systems. Thanks for making time, Ian. So um, we met on a beach, you know, we met between surfboards and, you know, between Malibu and Cupertino in your Apple days. And, um, you know, you have, uh, we have somewhat similar backgrounds in the sense that we both started out in you know in the music industry but you know quickly went on to uh you know to to merge that it never left that really left that industry behind us but kind of merged it with other worlds that we're passionate about but you know obviously your uh, your trajectory is is uh you know is uh incredible and um when i when i met you uh on that day in point doom I remember you uh, telling me that you were leaving Cupertino um, to come to Paris and um, and you've actually become much more Parisian than I am. So tell us a little bit about your your, your background in short. I know you've told this story many times, but I'd love for listeners to know it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, no, I remember very well when 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 we met because, you know, M- Mike D introduced us. And at the time I was at Apple and taking a job at LVMH and you know, here in, in Malibu, I met, you know, this, uh, this, this Parisian more or less, um, who, uh, you know, had, had worked with both Apple or was working with both Apple and, and LVMH. So it was your house in Topanga. Exactly. And then the, the, the Topanga house connection was just too much that, uh, you know, that, that the house where I used to have a, have a half pipe, um, was where you were spending a lot of time at, yeah. at the very least. The you know so so my story is this. I'm I'm, I'm from Indiana. I, I I grew up with computers. My my stepfather um, had computers in our house, Apple IIs. So I started programming at the age of eight, and you know assisting teaching computer classes at the age of ten. But but in high school, I was really just you know I wasn't into computers. I was into skateboarding. I was into punk rock. I was in a punk rock band. Um, and then when I was 17, uh, my girlfriend got pregnant and, you know, I was not college bound. I wasn't, I had no ambitions at all. I thought I was just going to, you know, skate and smoke weed and listen to music for the rest of my life, which I've managed to do, but I've done a few other things, uh, along the way. And, you know, I, I, I realized pretty quickly, oh man, I better go to, I better go to college because, you know, I was working at a radio station and I was washing dishes um, in, in a hospital cafeteria. And I, I did the math and realized I wasn't going to, you know, raise a kid on, on, on the $5, um, an hour I was making being a, a jazz radio announcer. So I went to college and ended up studying computer science and I got lucky because my personal interests were music. I was really in college at a great time. I was studying computer science at Indiana university in the early nineties. I started in 1990, I graduated in 94. And that really was the period of time when, you know, computer science went from being, um, you know, kind of being on the fringe, you know, to really being a part of mainstream culture, you know, at the beginning of my degree, when I would say computer science, there wasn't much interest, but by the end, people were starting to say things like, oh, well, uh, you know, 
Um, I was on America Online last night in a chat room and, you know, you're starting to see kind of the way that that culture might be touched by the Internet by by 1994. You started to have a glimpse of, oh, maybe this isn't maybe a job in, in the field of computer science isn't just about, you know, programming ATM machines, but it actually might intersect with popular culture in some way. Um, I had been doing, you know, research at the university uh, for the Indiana University Music Library that, that really became the first search and stream system for music. So, you know, you could say the first Spotify in a way. And then, you know, my, you know, I, I ended up kind of doing that over and over again um, until 2015. So I, I dropped out of grad school in 1995 to go on tour with the BC Boys, which ultimately is how I met you, Tim. Um, you know, many, many years later. Uh, but but we had a we had a popular MP3 player in the late 90s called Winamp that we sold to to AOL. Um, two of us left and started a, a company that was kind of a web-based version of Winamp that we sold to Yahoo in, in 2003 um, to a great uh, a great man named Dave Goldberg, um, who, if anybody knows kind of Sheryl Sandberg's story, will know will know kind of the story of, of Dave. But I'm I'm one of the many people who, who Dave touched in, in his life. And, you know, Dave, Dave changed my life in, in, in many ways. And, and I know many people have that story, but it's a meaningful part of my story. Um, then was, was uh, working with uh, Peter Gocher and Shamal Ranasinghe on a company called Topspin, which was about direct-to-consumer for, for artists. And in many ways had, you know, more to do, you know, it, it turns out that that was somewhat related to my tenure at LVMH. And actually, when we're kind of working on this world of NFTs right now, there's a there's an intersection with the work that we were doing um, first at Media Code, which is what we sold to Yahoo, but then also um, at Topspin with the kind of direct to consumer marketing and commerce part. But then I joined Jimmy Iovine, Dr. Dre, Trent Reznor, uh, Luke Wood, uh, you know, in this Beats mission. So I was the CEO of Beats Music, which was the software component, the, the music subscription component of the Beats universe. And then we sold that whole package to Apple in 2014. And I was the general manager of the streaming music business uh, at Apple um, through the launch of, of Apple Music. And really I'm proud of, of what, I, what I got to do with Zane Lowe at Beats One, which is, which is still the Apple radio station um, inside of Apple Music. And I think that that was really an incredibly interesting product pro project. And I, I loved working with um, with, with Zane and with Jimmy on, on, on that. But then I, I, you know, I, for me, that was just the end of the line. I, you know, here, here we, you know, when I started working on streaming music, it was total science fiction and nobody cared. It was like, you're doing what, why, who wants that? You know, even in 1999, people were like, wait, what MP3, why well, aren't, aren't compact discs fine? You know, even in 2002, you know, the, the music business was still saying, we're going to sell compact discs forever, right? But Dave, Dave, Goldberg, Dave Goldberg and I were just believers in, um, you know, the future of subscription music, you know, very early on. And, um, you know, these, these, it's a good lesson. You know, these changes take time. You know, trying to do streaming music before the iPhone existed was, you know, um, you know kind of, as they say, being early is the same as being wrong. Um, you know, but, but, uh, but by the time, you know, Tim Cook walked out on stage with the words, we love music behind him. And I'm thinking, wow, that's my product. You know, I, I really, I was so proud and thinking 
truly is my life's work. And I've, I've been really lucky to, to kind of be in the center of this space for so long um, and, and, you know, and, and do well for, for myself and my family as a, as a result at the same time, you know, now that it's an oligopoly, you've got, you know, Spotify, Apple, um, Amazon, YouTube as, as kind of this, this oligopoly of digital music, it, it feels like a, a solved problem. And I, I'd like to go, you know, to where there are new problems and, and disruption in retail felt very exciting to me. So when LVMH called, um, there are a number of reasons that, that I, that I said, yes, you know, some, some personal, some, you know, kind of intellectual and professional, but, but it, it felt really interesting to me and it was, so I, I really had a great five years at, L, at, at LVMH. Um, I'm still consulting for LVMH, uh, and, and the Arno family, um, who I, I really think very highly of. And I've, I've also since the beginning of January joined the board at Dr. Martin's, which is super fun because it, allows me to, to take some of what I've learned in this kind of retail disruption space and apply it to a culture that, that really means something to me. Um, and, uh, and I'm also still on the board at list lyst.com, uh, which is a fashion search engine. Um, but you know, 125% of my waking hours are spent working on, on this, this ledger opportunity. Ledger is a, has an experience around, around digital assets um, you know, that, that secures your assets and connects your assets to the, you know, the, the world of, of digital assets, whether that's, you know, buying, selling, trading, um, lending, et cetera, in, in, the, in the digital asset space. So, so, so thanks for, for, for this short summary of, of a really exciting, you know, trajectory, as I said, that, you know, just, you know, took on a new chapter, but you always, you know, find multiple threads, which is why I think you and I kind of enjoy, you know, you know, catching up and meeting wherever it may be. Um, so one thing that, you know, I want to go back to, it, you strike me as being someone who's kind of the, the, in the industry perceived to be kind of a pipe piper. You're always at the forefront of, you know, these massive revolutions within the digital age. And I think that, you know, being at the forefront of music, you know, the, the revolution, I think you were first and foremost before being uh, a computer scientist and an entrepreneur, you're, you are a music fan. And I think that when you transition to the fashion industry, I think the fact that you were this person that was brought in by Mr. Monsieur Arnaud to, you know, kind of transform, help transform and transition LVMH into, you know, its current form, uh, you know, in terms of a digital capacity and, and, and territory, I think that it signaled something to the industry that, you know, I think that Silicon Valley, you know, was really ready to take on not just, you know, fashion or luxury, but I think it has a lot more to do with retail and consumerism. And so I think um, that, you know, the big learnings, you know, it was a big signal for the industry that, you know, that was, you know, about to happen. Uh, can you just, uh, in short, tell us, you know, what those five years taught you in terms of, you know, uh, consumer habits and how tech is able to, you know, really, you know, hone in on an industry and transform, you know, everything that we know about the industry, you know? You know, I, I think that, that the, the hardest part that an, indus that an industry, well, I would say the, the thing that the industry has gotten wrong um, up to this point is sort of assuming that this transformation that they're going through is, is somehow you know, technical or digital or about, about computers in some kind of technical way. 
Um, and I think the thing, this is where I really have a lot of respect for the instincts of, of Mr. Arnaud and, and Alexander and, and also Tony, Tony Bologna. I think that when they hired me, um, you know, I'm, I'm a weird choice. I'm a weird, I'm a very strange person. Um, and, but there's something in their instinct said, we think this is the guy. And knowing them a bit, what, I, what I'm guessing resonated with them is that like them, I care about culture and I care about, about, about creativity. And I don't know if they could have expressed it exactly, but I think that on some level they got that I was interested in the way technology was changing culture, not just technology. And I think that that is actually the key piece because these are fundamentally culture businesses, right? You know, the, the, the um, fashion business, the luxury business, you know, like the music business, it really sells culture as a prerequisite to selling product, I always say. So, you know, if you don't appreciate the culture of a brand, you're not going to wear that brand on your body, right? And you're not going to, you know, pay a, a you know, of what is, you know, a relatively high amount, yeah. you know, for that product, you know, in when you when you pay that high price for a, um, for a luxury brand, um, you know, part of it is certainly the quality of, of the product that you're buying and, and, and the quality of the products are high, but you're also, you know, you're, you're, you're buying the storytelling, right? And, and I think that that is the, the, the piece, you know, I was speaking, you know, with another large, you know, luxury brand, the, 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 um, the owner of a large luxury brand uh, back, you know, at the, at the end of last year. And you know he, they were looking for a digital leader, and I was really trying hard to steer him away from people who were overly technical. You know, I think you want people who understand, um, you know, the way that culture is changing because we all have, you know, fast computers with high-speed networks, you know, in our pockets. You know, that's really what's going on. Um, what you have is is that you know we're all staring into these little screens all day, and that's changing humanity. And, um, and therefore you need to adapt to that change. And I do think that that comes all the way forward into the world of, of cryptocurrency and, and digital assets. I think, you know, the thing that, that I'm kind of blown away by here is, is, is that we really are um, reaching a point that many of the futurists predicted, um, you know, 30 years ago, which, and I think that what, what, you know, futurists have always kind of fundamentally understood is that human consciousness is human consciousness. And you can feel anger at comments in an online chat room and on YouTube the same way that you can, you know, feel, um, you know, stubbing your toe. You know, they're both just sort of, you know, things in human consciousness. And so, you know, I think that people get really hung up on this delineation between sort of old and new, digital, physical, you know, real, not real, and you know that, and I think that that um, you know that that's the thing that I've I've learned most over the last five years is that there that delineation does not exist. You know, culture is culture. Um, you know, it, it all appears in consciousness in in kind of the in the same place. And um, and so, if you are going to be a brand which is important uh, in culture, then you need to be. Uh, you know, where people are spending their time and attention. Right. And it has nothing to do with digital or physical. Right. And in a way, that's very much also, you know, the work that both you and I have done in different capacities with Apple. You know, I think that, you know, Apple has done an incredible job at, 
at you know using culture as as really one of the fundamental values and one of the fundamental currencies of its brand. Um, but I, I completely agree, and I think all the way to the fact and 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 look, there's a reason that Steve Jobs, you know, followed kind of Ben Adano, if you will, and I think that. That Steve Jobs told Ben Alano that he did this, you know, into retail, right? You know, he 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 sort of looked at, um, you know, the way that you position a brand. And I think what's amazing is, you know, when you're buying an iPhone, um, you aren't buying this piece of hardware with these specifications. You're buying an experience. You're buying actually the full stack. You're buying, um, you know, hardware, firmware, software services and transactions all in you know one package and you would never even know to say that but what you know is you're buying the experience of apple and that is i think a very you know that that that's that, that's kind of an all in you know culture play that's that's the bet that these devices are going to change our lives not just be tools within them yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's one lesson that I definitely learned over these years, you know, working with, with companies such as Apple and, and, and others in Silicon Valley. I very much share your approach technology that it's, it needs to make your life easier. It really is. I think you have, you know, it's been a driver in the work that you've done, for instance, you know, that I've witnessed over the last few years. It really is about solving problems rather than creating layers of complexity. And I think that having that as a, as a compass in the way that you approach technology really facilitates, to your point, you know, technology just becomes, you know, a language much more so than an, a, a, an end in and of itself. Um, and so going back to storytelling, I think that's, you know, that's gonna be more relevant than ever in terms of the work that you're doing with cryptocurrency, which is this new revolution that you're, you're very much, you know, at the forefront of. Um, can you, I mean, I, I think cryptocurrency might be actually a little bit reductive to the work that you're going to be doing with, with that you're doing with Ledger. Can you um, tell me a little bit more about what you've called a value transformation um, sure. in terms of this new, this, new this new chapter in the digital age? Yeah, I, I actually think the context here is, is really important. If I, you know, whenever I'm, I'm talking about this with, with, um, with friends, I, I try to, you know, try to get people to understand the big picture here. In other words, you know, let's not start with, um, you know, the price of Bitcoin. Let's start with, you know, what's the, what's the novel invention and how does this compare to what we just lived through um, on the internet transformation side? I mean, the internet uh, was about the free flow of information and that was incredibly transformative, right? I mean, I grew up in a world where, you know, there was nothing on television on Sundays, um, you know, and, and you were limited to, you know, by what was on the FM spectrum or what was at the local magazine rack. And, you know, our kids will never know that universe, right, where there's nothing to listen to on the radio and there's nothing to watch on TV like that. That's just if you think about it, you know, um, it's laughable um, at this point. And that transformation happened in the last 20 or 25 years. And then and, you know, fundamentally, it's about consumer choice with respect to information. And, you know, what it, it's done this amazing thing. You know, I always said anybody who, you know, like me grew up with punk rock and, you know, Maximum Rock and Roll magazine and made our own zine with a photocopier and a Sharpie, you know, the internet made sense to us day one because we knew what it was like, you know, to suddenly have unlimited distribution. This, this, this world of digital assets is, is sort of like turning that inside out because you know where the internet made it so that I didn't I no longer needed to print 50,000 you know copies of a magazine if I wanted to, to share my ideas with somebody 
you know, now, you know, but what that also meant was that, you know, nothing digital was scarce. And, um, and therefore, you know, owner, the idea of ownership started to evaporate, you know, I mean, how, how many times have you heard, you know, that, that kind of like, oh, well, you know, ownership doesn't exist anymore. We don't um, need to own compact discs. We don't need to own DVDs. We don't even need to own a car or maybe a house because of Uber and Airbnb, right? There was so much of, of you know, what the internet was doing was allowing us to kind of, um, uh, you know, give up ownership. And, you know, at the same time, you know, there are pieces of that that, you know, started to feel unnatural to us, you know, well, wait, um, we don't own money. And if I want to send money from one country to another, I, I have to, you know, prove, prove who I am, prove I'm not a terrorist, prove I'm not a money launderer, you know, I, I I don't, and I, I, you know, I, I suddenly like, you know, my accounts are frozen or my money is like stuck in limbo between two banks or, you know, the, well, this lack of ownership doesn't feel very good. Or, or you have the fact that now you don't even own your identity online. You know, everyone else owns, owns your, owns your identity. And, and the reality is, is that there are some things, you know, here, which are, which are, which are really fundamental. I mean, first of all, you have kind of this, this notion of, of store of value and, and hard money and, you know, which has kind of been served by gold for, um, you know, a few, a few hundred years at least, um, you know, but, but had, has been, you know, kind of taken over by, you know, this sort of numbers in a balance sheet, you know, financial system um, that we have, but also you have, you know, the kind of Cambridge Analytica, you know, um, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember the name of that Netflix documentary that 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 we that we all saw. Um, there were two of them actually: the Great Hack and then the um, the Social Dilemma. You know, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, we have we have you have that level of things. Well, I, I think that so the kind of the 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 novel invention here is digital scarcity. You know, it is it is possible now that um, you can own something digitally. And in some cases, that something is fungible, like a dollar bill. You know, if I owe you ten dollars, you don't care which ten dollars I give you. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's that's the the definition of fungible. Um, same thing with a with a bitcoin. You know, if I'm going to give you a bitcoin, you don't care which bitcoin I give you. It's a bitcoin. It's a store of value. It's worth one bitcoin. And then you also have the notion of digital scarcity, more like what you have in the collectible or art world. You know, you own. Um, you know, I, I have a Glenn Friedman picture on my wall upstairs, which is number two of two. I'm sorry, number two of five, I think, actually. I can't actually remember how big the series is. I have to go look. But I know that number one is owned by Russell Simmons. And it's important to me that I have number two and not number three. That, that's, that's the definition of, of non-fungible, right? Um, so you, you, this, now that this is actually kind of a technical possibility online, we're just starting to see, you know, kind of the applications of this. And the fact of the matter is, like we talked about a few minutes ago, we live digital lives. So we shouldn't be at all surprised that, you know, that this kind of technology becomes, becomes material. So from, from my perspective, you know, I, I'll, I'll just, you know, say in two seconds what, what Ledger is. You know, like, like Apple has an experience around, you know, kind of experiencing the internet, um, Ledger is really the experience for Web3. Um, because since we do have these digital assets and the digital assets have value, we have to protect that asset value. 
And the devices that we have in our hands, our mobile phones and our, our laptops are not built to protect that asset value. They are fundamentally web 2.0 devices. And you're not going to, to, to protect a uh, you know, million dollars in asset in digital asset value with your cell phone or your computer. Um, so you really have you know, two reasonable options. Um, you know, one is to put it at an exchange like a Coinbase or, or, a, or a Kraken. Um, but in that case, you don't have ownership. You know, they are the, they are the custodian um, and they of course are a honeypot and those do, those hacks do happen. Um, or you could um, secure them with a web 3.0 device like Ledger. And I think Ledger actually stands alone in, in, the, in, the, in the web 3.0 device category. So what, what Ledger does is it's a small piece of hardware, looks sort of roughly the shape of a USB stick. If you go to ledger.com, you, you, can, you can see it. Um, and it, it has a secure chip um, secure memory, secure screen, secure buttons. So there's no, you know, and, and it, it protects your private keys. So the way this works, if anybody's curious, it is really fascinating. Your asset value lives on the blockchain. The proof that you own those assets lives in public. So what you have to protect is your private keys because your private keys say, I am the owner of that asset value. So, you know, and, and what, you what, what you have in that though, is you have something which is, you know, what we call a critical digital asset, meaning it's a digital asset, but you could lose it or it could be stolen. Just like, you know, your cell phone could be lost or stolen. Your, your keys could be lost or stolen. Or if you had gold bars under your bed, they could be lost or stolen. If you had an envelope full of cash, it could be lost or stolen and you wouldn't have any recourse, you know, in that case. It's the same thing for, the private keys, which, which demonstrate that you are the owner of that asset value. They can be lost or stolen. And the holder of those keys is the owner of that asset value. And they can move it, they can transfer it, they can, um, they can exchange it, uh, et cetera. So you, you need some way to protect that asset value. And that's what Ledger does. Now I say that it's, it's sort of an Apple-like experience in the way that I described earlier, where you have hardware, firmware, software, um, you know, services and transactions kind of all stacked into something because, you know, it's not enough um, to just kind of protect that asset value. I mean, you know, if you, if you put it in a, a canister and sent it to Mars, then, you know, you, you, you would be protected, but also you wouldn't be able to, to benefit from it. Um, you know, so, you know, you also need to be able to securely interact with the world of digital assets. You know, if, if they are, you know, if it's money, you want to be able to trade it. If it's, um, you know, there are, there are many applications like kind of decentralized finance applications, whether it's, you know, lending and, and other ways to, you know, produce yield on your, on your assets, just like you have in the traditional finance world. Um, and, and you also have this kind of emerging world of NFTs where you're building a collection, like you're building an art collection um, and they're extremely liquid. So, you, you know, many of these assets are traded thousands of times. They change hands thousands of times. Um, and, and you want to be a part of that world. So what, what Ledger does is, is it, you know, connects you securely to that world. And I think it's, it's a, it's an interesting position to be in because, you know, as, as you said, it's, it, it's kind of encompasses the entire world of digital assets, you know, not just the world of, of speculating on cryptocurrency, which is certainly, you know, one, one thing, but, um, but to me, there's something much more fundamental here, which is, we now have critical digital assets. That's something that we didn't have. And those assets have unprecedented value. You know, I mean, the, the, the kind of the value, the market cap of, of all of these spaces has increased, you know, dramatically in the last six years, dramatically in the last six months. 
Um, and, and so, you know, with, with kind of increasing asset value, increasing utility, then you actually need a different class of, of hardware to play that game. And, and that's, you know, fundamentally what, what we're trying to build plus the experience that goes on top of it. And so one question for you is, do you feel like the, the tipping point for, for this to become, you know, just again, a, a massive, a mainstream phenomena is really about uh, the storytelling that you're able to, to put around uh, NFTs and, and, you know, um, dematerialized and decentralized assets. Is that, is that what you're really focusing on right now? You know, it's part, it's part of it. I, I think that, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, these things happen with kind of a confluence of, uh, of events. You know, if you look at this space, you, you know, you had, you know, the, the notion of, of Bitcoin is, is so mind bending. I mean, I loved it when I first looked into it back in, you know, kind of the 2009 timeframe, because for the first time in my life, I had to, you know, question what is money? You know, it's just something I had taken for granted that I hadn't really spent much time on. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, then, then you have this kind of, you know, bubble in 2017 with all of these ICOs and all of this, you know, it's similar in some ways to the dot-com bubble, because what you have is something very interesting, but then overexcitement, and it kind of has to get sorted out. Um, I think, you know, then what happened in 2020 is you've, you've got, you know, you, you've kind of got enough runtime on this kind of Bitcoin thing, you know, it kind of went through, it weathered the storm of 2017 of kind of bubble and burst. And, you know, there were people, there were kind of multiple factions in the cryptocurrency world at that time. Some people were saying, we think, you know, that, that Bitcoin is supposed to be the new cash. Other people were saying, no, we think it's the new gold. And so it kind of also had to make it through that argument. And then you kind of, again, see like, well, is it still standing? Well, wow. oh, wow, it is. In and that's, itself is a storytelling battle. <laughs> it, exactly. And I, I think this is, it's battle of narrative. It's evolution. It's yeah. evolution. Um, and, and then I think what happened is you, you, lay, you layer on top of that, you know, a, a, a global pandemic with where, you know, governments around the world are, are you know, re, are, in, are in truly an unprecedented territory in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of stimulus, You've got a popular, um, you know, uh, you know, you got MMT, modern monetary theory, uh, you know, is kind of like the de facto, um, you know, voice that's coming out of uh, out of, um, you know, people that are that are working at central banks. In other words, you know, money printing is fine as long as it doesn't it just, as long as it doesn't lead to inflation because technology is a deflationary force. Um, but you're starting to run out of tools in terms of you know how to. You know how to manage the the you know the the, uh, the the finance from a central bank perspective, and and then you have a lot of people going hmm, okay this you know this this kind of uh, crypto money thing looks like a reasonable hedge against uh, against what's going on in the broader financial market. We've we've been you know so in other words like all of these things are happening at the same time because of the global pandemic. The fruit stand at the corner no, long, no longer wants to take your cash. They're willing to give their money to, you know, you know, to the bank and Visa International, so they don't have to touch your money. You know, that's happening. So now we've now we're truly going digital. Even the people who were kind of, you know, hold, holdouts, and then I think you have this NFT thing, which brings a whole bunch of people into the space because there's a whole bunch of people for whom 
Bitcoin is just not interesting to them, but a LeBron James collectible card would be, right? right? Or, you know. But there's there's another element which I want to circle back to, which I think is a factor in accelerating, you know, this, you know, this movement and, and definitely going to be, you know, one, I'm sure one of the major challenges that you're already facing, which is the political and the social implication of, you know, really decentralizing, you know, money assets and and wealth in essence you know so um you know one of the things that i mentioned to you was that you know as opposed to you know the previous revolutions that you've taken part in you know in the music industry and you know retail i think that's definitely it like the work you're doing with ledger is you know has political and social implications which are much much larger you know we are in a world that is again, questioning these longstanding narratives that have been sovereign states, you know, and their, and their sovereign, you know, their sovereign authority on, you know, administering our lives with, you know, communications and policing and borders and money and, and, you know, just codes of law. So I think that the work you're doing really touches upon that as well. So how do you, how do you approach that challenge? It's such a great question. I mean, look, as I said earlier, I'm a skateboarder from Indiana. Like, I don't know what what my role is in, in in this. I certainly care about it, you know, as as a you know a citizen of 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 the planet and somebody who, like I said, I think that what I realized a long time ago is that what I've actually been is a is a student of how the internet has shaped culture. So it's impossible for me to not try to apply that pattern matching here. I also, you know, I, I think that I really do believe that that we're, you know, when you when you change the way that human beings are connected, then you change humanity. And I think that's what we've seen with the internet is, you know, we, you know, we, the world um, after the internet is not the same as as the world uh, before the internet. And you know, there was one simple thing that happened. You know, humanity was reconnected in a new way. But I think that that was also the case with television. That was the case with radio. That was the case. Um, you know, with outdoor media, that was the case with the printing press, right? So anyway, right. any- but that was always done within a framework that was that was basically uh, prioritizing the way we we're organized within states, you know, and that's kind of been blown to pieces within the digital revolution. I think that you know, and before we get to the to the cryptocurrency world, I think that is kind of the 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 most interesting. That that that's I really do believe that 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 democracy is fundamentally challenged because of the internet because. As human beings, you know, we we do live in a plane where we can connect with people globally who we share ideals with, right? So democracy is fundamentally a geographic exercise. You know, you draw a line on the ground around a, a group of people, and then you ask those people to elect a leader um, who represents their ideals. And so I think that you know, I, when I look at you know the town that I grew up in, Goshen, Indiana, you know, I think that electing somebody who represented the ideals of Goshen, Indiana in 1955 was much easier than in, than in 2021, when you have much more diversity, much more racial diversity, much, much more um, ethnic diversity, religious diversity, um, and much, much more, um, you know, uh, you know, disparity between, between rich and poor in Goshen, Indiana today than you did in 1955. And so to elect, to ask the people, even in that small little area to elect one person who represents their ideals is very difficult. And you're doing that at a moment when you ask Mark Zuckerberg, Hey, found me a thousand people who share my ideals and he snaps his fingers and they appear in view. So we live in these two worlds at the same time, the world where 
you know, um, you know, if I am, you know, if, if I am a, a, a libertarian or if I am a racist, it's very easy for me to find, you know, people who think the same as me on the internet, yet um, our political systems are fundamentally local, right? Um, you know, you could, so I think that, I think that that's, you know, that challenge is, is it's impossible, you know, it's impossible to separate everything else we're going to talk about from, from, from that, from that change, because, you know, now layer on top of that, um, you know, a monetary system, which is, which is truly global, um, a dollar, which is losing its importance in the world, a China, which is um, trying as hard as it can to accelerate that, that, um, that kind of dethroning of the, of the petrodollar and is, and now has its own digital currency that it's aggressively um, pushing for trade throughout Asia and, and the Belt and Road. Um, and wow, now we come back to your original question, which is, okay, what happens? Um, but I don't, I don't see it's where I, you know, I read an article in the economist about Bitcoin and they take this like really almost, again, they're talking about the speculation on the asset, like, oh, well, will, will Bitcoin, I'm like, guys, <laughs> are you missing the big picture here? I like, think we're what, what, yeah, the cultural revolution that, that's yeah, at, you know, you're, you know, revolution that's at play. okay. So let's say that Europe and the U S you know, kind of you know, sleep on this or do what India is threatening to do and, uh, you know, and, and actually just sort of retard progress altogether and just decide, oh, we're going to opt out of, of this revolution, right? Um, I mean, the, the implications of this are gigantic and the game, the game theory is at play. There's enough, you know, there is a, there, there's enough market cap in this at this point that if America said, you know, we are going to embrace cryptocurrency or we are going to, um, you know, uh, outlaw cryptocurrency, it will have a material impact on, you know, it'll be like, you know, once upon a time, whether, whether your country chose the silver standard or the gold standard, you know, turned out a hundred years later to be quite material to the history of your country. Right. I, and, and these are exactly the kind of decisions that are getting made in 2021. And do you think that um, the sustainability of, of you know, those, those new systems and, and networks rely on electing new authorities as well? Because as we're seeing, you know, with, you know, with governments and with all the changes that we've spoken of, you know, there have been, you know, there's been a reallocation of authority, you know? Um, and I think that one of the challenges for, for this, this, you know, this revolution in, in in NFTs and cryptocurrencies and whatnot is this sense that there's no central authority. I think that's frightening a lot of people. And I think a lot of people are having, you know, including me, are having a hard time conceiving of how a system can function. We see the benefits of not having a central authority, but we also see, you know, the, um, you know, the dangers and the risks of, with the lack of regulation, essentially of central regulation. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of books that I'd recommend for people. You know, one is called um, The Bitcoin Standard. And another one that I enjoyed is called Layered Money. Um, and I think that they, they provide a framework here because, you know, they're, they're, if you think about it, we, we've had a store of value that didn't have a central authority before and it was called gold. Um, you know, gold, gold was kind of like, you know, the reason that gold worked as, as hard money um, was that you, um, you know, it was hard to mine. And even if you threw a lot of resources at it, you couldn't really make more gold. And it also kind of stood the test of time. So therefore we could use it as a store of value, you know, and in the U S you know, I mean, I actually, so, you know, if, if you look at kind of what happened after world war II, 
you know, with Bretton Woods, we ended up with this kind of layered money approach where you had, you know, the U.S. had uh, had kind of, and I apologize for anyone who knows much more about this than me. There are many, many, many people who do, but this is my kind of oversimplified approach, which I think is relevant to this conversation, which is that you did end up with um, this incredible innovation where the, the U.S. kind of had the political might to say, you're going to use my you know, my dollar as, as a source of trade, but that dollar is going to be backed by this hard money thing, this decentralized, by the way, hard money thing gold. So actually, I would say, you know, the last, uh, you know, 30, 40 years, 50 years are, are, are more unusual than, than what we've experienced before, because in, in, you know, in the early 70s, the US came off of that gold standard and we've and now we've been in much more of a central bank world, right? To use the word centralized properly, where it's it's sort of you know the the trust of the governments that we're dealing in, um, and we're not on that kind of decentralized gold standard. Um, and you know while you might not agree with everything that that you know Dr. Safety says in the Bitcoin standard because he's you know, kind of a difficult character and, you know, sort of, you know, Austrian economist, libertarian, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot that goes under that, right? So you, you, you may, you may, you may find some of his, his passages challenging, you know, he does make a great case that, um, you know, that, uh, that, that hard money leads to, to peace, um, and uh, centralizing money with governments always leads to inflation. And, and, and so you, you could say that there's, there is kind of a check and balance um, that's coming with, uh, with, you know, uh, with a, a store of value, which is truly predictable. Um, and, and in other words, you know, the, su the supply side of Bitcoin is 100% predictable. The only thing you have to model is the demand side. And, you know, I, I actually really do consider it, you know, a matter of time before a country, you know, whether it's, you know, Ecuador or India, you know, moves to the Bitcoin standard, you know, it's, it's almost game theory. Whoever moves first wins. Such a fascinating take on the geopolitical situation. I mean, I find this, it, it blows my mind to, if you, you know, if you look at the geopolitical context with, with you know, what you've just explained in terms of, you know, centralized versus decentralized uh, monetary systems. It's, it's such, you know, it turns the whole, the whole geopolitical assumptions on its head in terms of the big political powers and whatnot at play. And, and again, I want to, I want to caveat it by saying I'm not the expert. I just, I just, I just kind of read and follow the threads. I wanted to spend a couple minutes on, on the NFT topic, which is in a, in a related way, actually, I think, you know, the, the NFT, thing has exploded in the past. Um, I mean, I, I, when I took this, put it this way, when I, when I said yes to this job in September, I could have never imagined that I would spend February and March talking to all of my friends in the music business. Um, and we're actually about to announce, tomorrow we'll announce um, a, a head of NFTs for Ledger who comes from Apple. So you'll enjoy that, that announcement, right. Tim. Um, should be announced by the time we, we, we broadcast this. Um, but I, I think that you know, I, the, there, there's something in, incredibly interesting on this this NFT topic in that, you know, sure, there's there's kind of the speculative art world, and there'll be interesting things come of that. And I think hopefully it means great things for artists. And and what I really hope is that it, it amounts to an opt-in world for artists. The world that artists live in right now is opt-out. Do you? Oh, you don't want to be on YouTube? Okay, well you have to opt out. Otherwise, you're opted in. 
right? Oh, you don't want to be in the deal that all of the labels who aren't you decided is your deal for Apple Music and Spotify. Oh, well, you can opt out if you want, but you know, see what I'm saying? Like artist has yeah. no hand in that deal. Their choice is to say I'm in or I'm out, right? So I think that there's one big thing here is that you can imagine a world where this world becomes opt-in for artists and artists can, can say, can set the business rules and then you know, other people can opt in or out <laughs> as to whether they believe that the value is there for the art or not. So I think that is, that is an, an, an incredibly um, exciting future. I think the other thing, you know, when I put this, when I look at this through my LVMH lens, I say, man, I, I think it's, um, it's likely that if I buy a Nike shoe from Nike a year from now, and I'm using Nike because I, I know literally no one there. I'm just just almost speaking as a as as a citizen and a customer. I think that that Nike shoe will come with a digital a digital item, and I and and I think that in the consumer's mind, the perceived value of a physical item which comes with a digital item will be greater than the perceived value of just a physical item. And in a world where the LVMHs and Dr. Martins, where I'm a board member, and the Nikes and Adidas all want to build stronger direct-to-consumer businesses, I think a world where, you know, when I buy that Givenchy bag from Givenchy.com, it comes with a piece of digital art that was a collaboration with Matthew Williams. And when I buy it from Farfetch, it does not. I think that that re is really meaningful yeah, exactly. So I, I think that this is going to be, you know, incredibly interesting. I wish, I wish I had a digital representation of every band t-shirt I've ever owned in my life sitting in a collection somewhere. And I, I think that that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the future that, that, um, that we're going to live in. And I, I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's incredibly, it's incredibly exciting. Fascinating. Well, it's, it's so great to speak with you, Ian, and see you always so inspired and inspiring. So uh, um, I look forward to to catching up in uh, in person. But uh, but thank you for sharing all this. And it, it's yeah. great. It's Thanks great for giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much.